Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a It's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to the Prospect Podcast. I'm Tom Clark, the editor, with your weekly helping of politics. I've interviewed Vince three times for Prospect, and the thing that struck me each time I went there, uh, as well as kind of a bit of a sad sense of uh, resignation, was that he no longer quite has that elder statesman character. And culture. And as well as being a reflection of the racial politics of the time, it very clearly throws forward to uh, the current Trump uh, era. And this week, my colleague Stephanie Boland is speaking to the writer and historian of ideas, Lindsay Stonebridge, on the question of refugees and their status. What rights should displaced people have? And how should the history of the 20th century inform our thinking about the current refugee crisis? So that question of what my human rights should be could only half fulfil its promise because it stumbled on the question of refugees. Much more of that later. But first, welcome to Alex Dean, our politics correspondent, and Samir Rahim, who's our culture vulture. Um, The headlines in recent weeks, um, Alex, have been dominated by conservative infighting and Labour controversies. But there's something missing in that last picture, you think? It, decline of the Lib Dems. I think it's uh, it's not a completely new thing, of course. Um, they've, they've really struggled since they went into coalition um, to kind of get anything like back to the same levels of support. It's been back in the news recently, though, because uh, Vince has given a speech saying eventually he's going to stand down. Uh, and as part of that, suggested some rule changes for the party, including the idea that non-MPs could stand to be leader. Um, now, how badly are they doing? I've seen some polls in the last week or two that suggest that um, people are a bit fed up of the civil wars in the other two parties and, you know, they might be climbing back, to, not a long way, but back towards, I don't know, 10% rather than 6 or something. Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen flutters, but that's all they are. Um, and I think it's nothing like the level of support that the Lib Dems would have hoped for back when they decided to kind of position themselves against Brexit, which they hoped was going to really draw in the Remainer sentiment. It didn't happen. I think one big problem is that Remainers seem to have identified more with Corbyn's perceived soft Brexit stance. We can debate about whether he actually has that stance, but I think certainly Remainers were gravitated towards Labour, and that's kind of uh, shot the Lib Dem fox, so to speak. We saw that, of course, in the election last year, but Samir, it's not only Brexit, is it? It's all kinds of issues where you kind of look at... fairly nationalist um, conservative platform and a very socialist Labour platform and think ordinarily we'd have thought there'd be a lot of people in between. You would have thought so but we're living in polarised times and really Vince Cable and the Liberal Democrats 
they're not really as exciting yeah. as Corbyn yeah. or uh, people get excited by Jacob Rees-Mogg or, or, or whatever. He, he doesn't really have that sense of newness or, 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 or authority. I mean, he couldn't be a he couldn't be a British Macron just because of who he is. I agree, and I think I'd go a step further. I think that Vince and the Lib Dems under Vince were never really a particularly exciting prospect. But Vince's stock in trade, especially during the coalition years, was being kind of an elder statesman and sensibleness and reasonableness, things that I you know, put quite a lot of uh, value on in politics and I think are in uh, such short, short supply that there is a space for them. I've interviewed Vince three times for Prospect and the thing that struck me each time I went there, uh, as well as kind of a bit of a sad sense of uh, resignation, was that he no longer quite has that elder statesman character. He now just seems a little bit flat. <laughs> so it was whereas before, maybe if not exciting, he could have positioned himself as at least the sensible alternative. He doesn't even really seem like that anymore. At least that wasn't my overriding impression when I saw him. And so um, this rule change, I mean, it does sound Macron-esque in a way, like, like open open everything up and, and, and bring in someone or other to run things from outside. Can you see it working? Can you even begin to imagine how it might work? Basically, I think there's political and constitutional differences between us and France that make a Macron-style resurgence or, uh, you know, com coming to the fore quite unlikely. In France, they've got the two-stage system, which means that people can use their first vote as a kind of rebellion, but it's, it's not quite directly comparable, um, as, you, as I'm sure they hope. There's some talk that a non-MP like Gina Miller, if she could become leader, that might rejuvenate the party, but I I'm not sure there's fundamental problems facing the Lib Dems are going to be overcome by just a new leader. I think it, they need more than that. I think if Brexit goes really catastrophically, maybe we could start to see people flocking back. And indeed, if there's new efforts for a, another centrist force, the Lib Dems should probably be in the centre of that. They, they centre of that effort. They've got a parliamentary presence. They've got a couple of thousand councillors. Um, you know, they've got 12, 13 MPs now. So I think if there is a new coordinated centrist effort and they're part of it, maybe that's where their future lies. Um, and just, I mean, playing fantasy politics for a minute, if if, if someone from outside were to do it, I mean, who, who do you think? Gary Lineker? I mean... Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know if I can see Lineker going for it. What do you think, Smith? Um, I don't, you know, I think... Tony Blair? Tony Blair, possibility... Um, I don't know about Gary Lineker simply because, um, well, he might Chris Evans style choose to leap, but I think that maybe the salary you get as a Lib Dem leader is not quite <laughs> comparable to what you would get. It's presenting match of the day, so. <laughs> well, from that form of entertainment, let's shift now to um, a possibly rather more serious form of entertainment. Um, Spike Lee, Samir, has got a new uh, film out, which is purportedly about an event back in the 70s, but it's pretty obviously about um, Donald Trump as well. Yes, it's, uh, it's a funny one, this. I didn't think I'd ever be saying that a Spike Lee film had uh, a policeman as its hero. Uh, but it does this film. Uh, it's called Black Klansman, and it's set in the 1970s. And as well as being a reflection of the racial politics of the time, it very clearly throws forward, sometimes in rather um, obvious ways, um, to uh, the current Trump uh, era. But it's also a little bit more interesting, perhaps, than, than you might think. It's not just agitprop, um, and it's not simply um, uh, uh, an encouragement to, to radicalism. 
So the story is that a guy called Ron Stallworth, and this is apparently a, a true story, was the first uh, black person to join the Colorado Springs police force in the 1970s. He's always wanted to be a policeman. That's his big ambition. As soon as he gets in there, though, he's told to go uh, undercover and infiltrate a black radical gang. But um, he he does that, but he's slightly uncomfortable. What he really wants to do is to get at the Ku Klux Klan. So what he does is he recruits one of his colleagues, um, who happens to be Jewish, um, called Flip Zimmerman, and he um, they effectively split their... Um, their roles. So, so Ron speaks to David Duke and the Ku Klux Klan on the phone, convincing them that he's going to be a new member. Uh, and his friend Flip goes in undercover. So it's a sort of slightly farcical story. But what is what I found most interesting about it is that it's about what it means when a minority has to enter a workforce which they admire, an institution that they admire in many ways. But the police, not the clan. The police, the, not the clan, mm. no. That, that, that comes a bit later. That they fundamentally don't um, feel understands them. They suddenly become the representative of their community to the police. And his value, first of all, is, well, we've got a black person now. We can try and take down all those uh, student radicals. And when he goes to speak to the radicals, he falls in love with a very uh, beautiful and intelligent um uh, radical woman there and she, um, she um, doesn't know that he's a policeman he keeps that hidden from her um, she calls policemen pigs so he's having to hide his identity in both areas if you see what I mean and then you have the Jewish character as well who um, has to go undercover and in some quite interesting and difficult scenes um, the members of the Ku Klux Klan um, you know, ask him about his identity and, you know, they suspect that he might be Jewish and he has to make some really nasty comments about Jews in order to prove his own identity. So there's a sort of texture and nuance to it that you might not expect from a, a Spike Lee film. Samir, I think we were talking about this earlier and you were mentioning that it maybe draws on some other classic films uh, and wraps those into it. There were a couple you named. Gone with the Wind, I think, was one. Spike Lee's also riffing on the idea of being a black filmmaker in Hollywood. So just as Ron is part of the police forces white institution, he as a filmmaker has to think about the history of American cinema. So there's a scene in the film where Birth of a Nation, the uh, D.W. Griffith film about the Ku Klux Klan is shown um, to the uh, uh, Ku Klux Klan members and they're sort of um, laughing along with it. Uh, and it's then all also mentioned that Woodrow Wilson showed that film in the White House. Um, the opening scene of uh, this film uh, is taken from Gone with the Wind with a big Confederate flag flying. So he's coming to terms with this grand tradition of American cinema to, in a way, great but extremely troubling American films and what it means to be a black filmmaker inevitably being the inheritor of that tradition in terms of technique, in terms of um, just the way the whole system is set up, uh, but also trying to change the narrative. Sounds like a, a fascinating film that's going to be well worth seeing. But let's leave that there for now and turn to a conversation between um, our digital editor, Stephanie Boland, and um, Lindsay Stainbridge, who's a historian of ideas who pops up regularly on the Prospect website and sometimes in the print magazine as well. Um, and we go over to the pair of them now.
My name's Stephanie, and I'm here with Lindsay Stonebridge. Best known for her work on the political theorist Hannah Arendt, Lindsay has written on refugees, statelessness, and even on what she terms the banality of Brexit. Her new book, Placeless People, Writing Rights and Refugees, focuses on the literary side of those questions, and we're going to be talking about how those ideas carry through to today. Lindsay, perhaps a good place to start is actually towards the end of your book with Dorothy Thompson. One of the things you speak about is how the creation of nation states and the rights associated with them, which Arendt is so focused on, also raises the question of people who are not in those states and don't have those rights. I mean, in a sense, that's the predicament we still have today. So how does Thompson come to this and how might her words speak to our present moment? When she went to Palestine, just at the end of the war, she wrote to her then editor, Ted Thackeray, and said, the situation is not what you thought at all. So she then turned face and became a real supporter of um, the Palestinian refugees. She toured um, the refugee camps and the refugee aid efforts in Lebanon, Jordan, um, Palestine, Egypt. In 1950, returned again and again and campaigned for Palestinian um, refugees and kept on pointing out that, you know, that, this was an issue about how we decided to to organize and run run the world of course she lost columns she lost jobs she lost friends um she was accused of being an anti-semite i mean that that's a mute question i think with thompson but she was quite right to say you know you you can't have it both ways you can't have nation state sovereignty which is quite a good way to organize the world and not expect to produce this problem which will then produce new problems in the end, I think she just couldn't think her way through it because her model of a really good state was still U.S. democracy. She said, it's not like Europe, it's not like the European state, not like the European nation state. America does have patriotism, but it doesn't have um, ethnic um, nationalism. Therefore, it's a different category of, of country. But she couldn't quite think her way out of that question. So it's not, it's, like, it's not as if Dorothy Thompson was a champion of Palestinian refugees and had good politics. Um, it's more the case that she um, saw, she identified the issue of refugees and violent state formation, and she called the problem and she pointed it out. And we're still living in that, in that moment. I mean, that's quite phenomenal to have a question like that then, which still feels so current. I mean, mean, it has been ever thus. And my historian colleagues will say, well, people, of course, have always moved. But within a nation state system, that signifies something different. And the thing that Hannah Arendt, as well as Dorothy Thompson um, and Simone Weil, maybe we can come back to the question, these are all women who saw this quite clearly, we'll come back to it again and again, is you know, what, what happens when you create um, populations of rightless, radically rightless people? Um, and, that, and that is exactly where we are now. What, what do you do? With that, you do not keep on closing your gates <laughs> or building walls because guess what? This isn't a problem that's going, going to shift. I did want to ask you about that because you have this group of women thinkers, but then you also mentioned the philosopher Giorgio Agamben, who you say, you know, slightly wryly, is much more fatalistic. Without wanting to be essentialist, what is it about that group of women thinkers that places them apart? Is there a different quality? Well, no, because it then yeah it ends up with saying women are hopeful, and I think actually the thing about these women, I also write about Simone Weil in the book, is they're not. They're all um, <laughs> radically pessimistic um, and and clear sighted. Um, so, but then they, I mean, they are 
living in the world. I mean, all of those writers, Hannah Arendt especially, Thompson for different reasons, Simone Weil, um, are fundamentally attached to the world they live in. So they, they, they don't give way to a kind of fatalism in, in that way. And they all do keep more, well, both Thompson and um, Hannah Arendt are, are um, people who can't imagine the world without political sovereignty. Um, they, I mean, that's, I mean, politics is a way of being for both those women in very, very, very different ways. So I don't know, I mean, you know, th people ask me about that, the last book. I mean, why did so many women write about war crime trials? Um, and the unglamorous answer is that no one was really interested in them. So like, as now, you know, it's the kind of the junior journalists and the women who get sent to sit there endlessly listening to um, rather long trials. And then, you know, Frank Gardner's and other people get sent in when things get exciting towards the end. And actually in, those, in the trials, I mean, most of um, the men were still on the Eastern Front um, reporting. So I think it's quite often it's like, you know, uh, uh, who gets to do work that's not seen as particularly glamorous. I mean, refugees were a big issue during the war, and especially after the war. Um, but in terms of reporting and writing a, about um, statelessness and refugees, it's not the same as writing about um, a war. That. But very interesting, because our governor, of course, wrote a thesis on Simone Weil and that whole critique of um, categories of legal being or the way that your law, that law becomes your life. Um, or the way you, you know, you're allowed to live a life does come from Simone Weil and his his you know his great essay on refugees is a direct lifting from Arendt. So I think he he I mean I, th I see I tend to see him in a kind of a tradition of there've always been a kind of a positive spin on 20th century human rights um, and the way way it got articulated. And there have always been people who are just as passionate, if not more passionate, about justice who've had a critique of that. And I'd put Arendt and Vale at the beginning of that critique. And so I think um, Agamben is their pupil rather than, you know, going back to the point, they should, people should be reading Vale and Arendt before they read Agamben. And it's also a, a more enjoyable read uh, as well. I think we'll have to include a reading list under the podcast. Um, but let's talk more about that question of fatalism. I presume a devoted Agambenite would say, well, if you take a clear-eyed view of these things, fatalism is where you inevitably end up. But you've written in Prospect and Elsewhere about uh, politics of responsibility, and perhaps in that sense, fatalism isn't helpful. Yeah, no. I mean, I don't think you can step out of um, political sovereignty, um, and, and, and nor should one. And I think where the limits of this become very clear um, when you actually look at... Um, communities of refugees or communities of other people who are in some ways outside nation-state sovereignty, um, either through choice or through, um, more likely, um, through circumstance. Um, and, you know, there, there are very various places that people can exist um, in non-nation-state forms of um, organization which are nonetheless have forms of sovereignty, refugee camps are one, um, refugee communities in cities such as Beirut, etc. are another. Um, the kind of um, organization you have between um, um, volunteer groups, local communities, refugees are yet another. And these are places that, are, that have a history. I mean, this is, you know, really important um, to keep going back to. I mean, one of the other projects I've been involved in at the moment with a, a group of um, social scientists is looking at communities that are hosting Syrian refugees 
in Lebanon um, and Jordan and, and indeed Turkey. And what's very interesting about that, if you take somewhere like Badawi Refugee Camp, which was a refugee camp funded, um, which was opened in 1955 officially by the soon-to-be-defunct if Trump has its way, UNRWA, um, Palestinian refugee camp. Never, you, you do not have citizenship if you're a Palestinian refugee in Lebanon. Um, there are certain things you can't do. You can't function as a political citizen. You can't put your sewers in. You, can't, you are dependent on aid. Um, but you are a community. And the you know, camps and other localities um, come together to make a different type of sovereignty. Um, and it, it is, of course, to places like Badawe that quite a lot of Syrian refugees have come, not only Syrians, Iraqis and Kurds, um, who have, you know, been um, offered a kind of hospitality. It's not, it's not ideal. I mean, everyone's fighting for resources. These aren't rich places. But these things are happening. People will organise and they will think about um, how to organise a political community. Um, when, because they have no choice but to do that, otherwise you don't get things organised like aid or food or electricity. So I think one of the reasons is, okay, there's nation-state sovereignty and we need to quarrel with that and we need to redefine what it is, and that's urgent. But there are also different forms of sovereignty um, and different ways of doing politics and ethics that are happening all around us. A government starting from rents analysis that says, she talks about what the refugees of the last century taught her was that the rights of man meant nothing. And what she meant was the moment that you had been decitizened, taken out of citizenship, stripped of your political and civic and national rights. And, and so what she discovered then is the moment when you're only human is actually you know, the moment when all you have is the rights owed to you by being human is the moment you have no rights at all. Okay. So um, Agamben picks up on this and says, well, actually, you know, I, I mean, the categories of personhood in modern life are legal and political, they're juridical. And once you um, are evacuated out of that category, you fall into the realm of just being bios, biological life, which means that people can do anything they like to you. You, you just become, as it were, matter. And in some ways, that's a discourse that, that you can see happening. Um, but in other ways, you know, there are different categories of personhood um, then become available, or we then start giving to one another. So the bare life thing, I think, has always been a bit too um, pessimistic and too quick to deprive people of the agency that they actually can have and do exercise and the way that people will um, assume rights that aren't there. There's a great moment, Hannah Arendt, when she, who, of course, was a refugee herself, one of the first things she did when she got to New York as well as write a lot um, of journalism, is worked on the Kafka diaries. And she wrote a couple of essays on Kafka in 1944. Um, and you know, she started um, working on um, you know, how Kafka was representing that question of statelessness um, or rightlessness. Um, and she wrote about Kafka's The Castle, which is both well worth rereading these days. And Carr, K in The Castle, turns up the village at the castle, thinking he's got an offer of work. Like most migrants, he makes a first category error. He thinks he's welcome um, and just can't get anywhere. I mean, the, the, the bureaucracy system um, in, in the castle has been basically developed by a forerunner of Theresa May's home office. I mean, it's deliberately capricious. It's deliberately obscure. It doesn't make any sense. And Arendt says the thing that's really radical about Carr is he just walks around um, assuming that he should have rights. 
um, and everyone else is still telling him he shouldn't. He, she, she says he's the ordinary, um, you know, um, you know, man of goodwill, the Jew of goodwill, she says, who um, simply expects the world to behave as if he has got rights. And this is what drives everyone bonkers about him. Um, and it seems to me that that's sort of something that a lot of um, people who are deprived rights are doing right now, is actually not reading their regard, and I'm not saying I'm going to be bare life, it's just saying oh, it's, you know, I'm just going to rock up here and, um, and behave as if I have got human rights. And that's quite a radical act in itself. And it's more difficult, um, I mean a lot of my book is criticised as a kind of humanitarian ethics around um, refugees. It's more difficult just to accept, well actually let's have radical human rights, let's have rights that, you know, um, let's, let's respond to this demand, which is a demand for political agency, which says I am a citizen, I'm a citizen in transit, I want my rights, rather than either bare life or, um, you know, suffering the endless performance of suffering so that people will empathise and therefore somehow change. That doesn't seem to work, by the way. Arendt calls refugees the vanguard of their people. I mean, they don't have any choice. I mean, most people would never choose to be the vanguard <laughs> of anything. Um, once you're there, you're there. And certainly if you look now, if you look in places like Berlin, um, the work that's done in France, in Beirut, um, um, it's the young thinkers, artists, writers, and people who are doing politics. Um, who are actually the, in, in the vanguard. Well, this is something your writing speaks to very powerfully when you talk of what you say is the turn away from a politics of rights to a least harm humanitarianism. I mean, there's a, there's a history to this. I mean, when we, if we'd go back to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, um, which was supposed to make in Herschel Park, who was the brilliant um, Jewish lawyer who was responsible, um, one of the many people responsible for um, legislating for human rights. And he, his ambition was to make everyone, to turn, uh, no one should have to be an object of compassion, everyone should be a subject of international human rights. That was the ambition. Um, and that came on stark very early. I mean, the one thing that both Lauterpacht um, um, and Ray Kassan and others said is you need a right to asylum. You need to have a right to asylum. We don't have a right to asylum. We have the right to seek and enjoy asylum. And you know, that came about um, through some sort of fancy political footwork um, during the drafting of the legislation. There's a story that's often told um, by historians of human rights of when, when people were drafting the declaration, which is a massive act of you know, creative um, imagination and political fortitude. They broke off their deliberations to listen to Ralph Bunch, who was then the um, UN's um, guy in Palestine, Israel, to report on the exodus in 1948. So he's reporting on the Nakba. Um, Ralph Rich, by the way, was the first African-American to win the Nobel Prize, so he, he, he's, he's interesting in his own right. And so he basically rocks up and says, look, uh, mm, we have another crisis here, really, really, and it's really bad. Um, whereupon the Iraqi delegate says, well, what are we doing discussing human rights in the abstract? We should be you know, talking about this. And to an extent, they did just that. Um, but this allowed um, countries like Lebanon, who were taking... Um, the um, the bulk of um, Palestinian refugees to argue for a right to return, which most refugees do have the right to return to their own country. They thought that was very important. That later came undone um, in, 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 to, in subsequent legislation for the Palestinians. Um, but it also allowed Saudi Arabia and the UK working together 
to um, turn the right to asylum into just the right to seek asylum. And that part afterwards says, if, if the right to seek asylum is the same to the right to asylum, why not just have the right to asylum? What are you doing here? So that question of what right human rights should be was always, as it were, um, blocked or um, could only half fulfil its promise um, because it stumbled on the question of refugees. It stumbled on the question of our obligations to people who fall outside nation-states. So if you read someone like um, the legal scholar Itamar Mann in his book, um, Humanity at Sea, which is a very, very wonderful book, he would retrace that history and say, well, that was actually a misstep. I mean, what, what happens if, you, if we formed human rights around the idea of statelessness and rightlessness rather than trying to marry the right to self-determination and universal rights? And that's the question of, of the now, I think, where, where might we relocate um, human rights. That was my colleague Steph Boland speaking to Lindsay Stonebridge, whose book, Placeless People, Writing Rights and Refugees, will be released in January. You can read more about the current refugee crisis as well as uh, all of Lindsay's writing for Prospect at our website, prospectmagazine.co.uk. And do keep an eye out for the October issue of the magazine, which will be out soon. And uh, we'll be having a good look at Twitter, how that's risen and how politics has descended into abject mess in parallel. Could there by any chance be a link? Many thanks for tuning in. I'm Tom Clark. The producer is Jay Elwares. And as I mentioned, you can read more on refugees and the problem of statelessness, as well as essays on politics, arts and culture at prospectmagazine.co.uk. And do check out the subscription offers while you're there. I promise you, they're very reasonable. Be sure to tune in next time too to the Prospect Podcast. Thanks and goodbye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.